Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. We're in Revelation 17. This is part two. And uh, wow, I, I hope that you stay and don't leave. I hope no one gets offended and uh, gets angry with me tonight. Mark was here for our first two Revelation Revealed uh, studies, and I said, Mark reminded me, I said at that time that I'm not going to get into anything scary, you know, this is just, we're going to take a, just a good, solid look. He reminded me tonight of that, and I said, well, it may get scary tonight, right? (laughs) So, let's say a prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your word. Speak to us through these verses, Lord. Speak to us today, God. Let us, let us know what these are saying and how they apply to us. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Now, I want to start out by reading verses 1 through 9. We had jumped into this, laid a great foundation, and we're going to, uh, we're going to go back into it, do a deep dive. But I want to start by reading those first nine verses. From Revelation 17. Let's go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So let's stop there and do some review and introduce some new information. The beast in these verses is the Antichrist and his system. So we have a partnership between Antichrist and the woman. Now she's called the great harlot. She's not just a harlot. She's a great harlot. The Greek is mega. She's a mega harlot. This is speaking of spiritual fornication. This is false religion. 
false doctrine. Harold read the verse Sunday where there are false teachers, false prophets, a false gospel. You remember that. And here we have false religion. It's it's idiomatic here with this spiritual fornication, this idea of fornication and this harlotry. And we know that false religion and spiritual fornication is associated throughout the Bible with Babylon. Babylon. Everybody say Babylon. And verse 18 says that she's a city. So it kind of interprets itself as Revelation so aptly does. She's a city. We have a city associated with spiritual fornication, riding the beast. There's this epic worldwide scale where this, this woman is influencing the world. When Babylon was wiped out, essentially, in October of 539 B.C. at the Battle of Opus, the priests did not get destroyed totally, and they didn't keep their religion uh, hidden and holed up in caves in Iraq, which is really where the city of Babylon is. They fled to Asia Minor, Pergamum, Thyatira. We've mentioned this before. Thyatira used to be known by another name, Semiramis, which was the wife of Nimrod, the beginning of Mystery Babylon, Ishtar, Diana, etc. And notice, she along with the beast sits on many waters. Verse 15 says the many waters are, it interprets it for us, peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, This woman influences the world. As a matter of fact, she influences the influencers of the world. She influences the kings of the world. She gets them drunk on her deception. They commit fornication with her. This this goes back to ancient times, ancient times. But as we'll see, this is still very relevant today, and it will be even after the rapture of the church. The woman, the harlot, has exerted worldwide influence, uh, and she's arrayed with a particular color of clothing, recognizable by her clothing, and it's a hint to her identity. She wears purple and red. Purple was the imperial color of the Roman, Roman Empire, and yet she's called Mystery Babylon. Could there be a connection between Rome and Mystery Babylon? So let's continue. Not only that, but she's also adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So she's flashy. She's opulent. She flaunts fabulous wealth. Not only that, she has a golden chalice, a cup in her hand, and it's filled with abominations, with the filthiness of her fornication. So she cooks up this intoxicating brew. It's bitter, and she intoxicates the heavy hitters of the world. She intoxicates the world. It's a spiritual fornication that we're talking about here. And on her forehead is, is written, in all caps, even in the original, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations that are in the earth. The mother of harlots. The, the mother of harlots and the abominations that are in the earth. She is Babylon. But it's, again, it's not the physical, historical city. There are some prophecy teachers that teach that it is a physical city. And and when Saddam Hussein was building the city and rebuilding the city, 
it was like, wow, this is going to come to pass. It will be a physical city, but, but not so much anymore because Saddam Hussein is gone. He's dead, and the city lies in ruins for the most part. It's just uh, kind of a tourist trap. But there is a city uh, that is the headquarters for the mysteries of Babylon. The, the, they are the stewards of much of the thought of ancient Babylon. Like I said, when ancient Babylon was destroyed, the priests fled and, and they moved. They became mobile and they carried with them those ancient doctrines and teachings. There is a city that is the steward of those teachings uh, like Semiramis and Nimrod and Tammuz, the mother of God, the queen of heaven, her son, and, uh, and, and where, where could that be? She's, the, she's called the mother of harlots. Uh, in other words, she had offspring, daughters specifically. So let's unpack this. I told you last week we're going to talk somewhat of the Roman Catholic Church. And I just want to tell you, tell you this up front. Anybody that is Roman Catholic, I am not, I am not trying to slam you, if that's you, or them uh, who may hear this. It's not personal. Uh, I have friends, I have family that's Roman Catholic. Uh, some wonderful people that I know uh, are Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm just, we have verses here that we have to address. Oh, I got, it's really, really quiet in here. We have to address these verses. Where are they leading us? This is prophetic. There was no Roman Catholic Church when this was written. This is around 95 A.D. There was no Roman Catholic Church. This is John on the island of Patmos seeing deep into the future and doing his best to understand or at least to record what he saw. And this is speaking prophetically. We've been diving into this. Go back and listen to the previous podcast, and and you can kind of see how we got to this point. But let me deal with the Roman Catholic Church, some of its origins, etc., The color scheme we saw, similar and significant. We know that bishops wear purple, cardinals wear red. And the ostentatiousness of the Roman church is legendary. Gold, precious stones, pearls, opulence, fabulous wealth, in spite of vows of poverty by many of the religious orders. Take a look at Vatican City, cathedrals around the world, from St. Patrick's in New York City, to the Metropolitan Cathedral in San Salvador. I've been to both. They're amazing. To St. Louis Cathedral down in Jackson Square. Some opulence, some fabulous wealth. And to the Roman Catholic Church, Protestants are considered to be daughters. As a matter, as a matter of fact, Vatican II, very influential uh, in, in modern Catholicism, Vatican II calls the Protestants daughters who will soon return home. Now, I would argue that the apostolic church, can I talk to you just for a bit? Are you all right with this? Fasten your seatbelts. Let me take a drink. That's just water. I would contend that the apostolic church almost immediately became under assault by false doctrine, by false teachers, by Antichrist. 
the spirit of Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist. John talked about the spirit of Antichrist that was already at work in the world, affecting the church. John talked about that. This is less than, you know, this is less than, this is about 60 years after Jesus, even less. And in that early, early powerful church, the devil had gotten inroads and was affecting the purity, listen to me, of the teaching of the church. And listen, we we can talk all day long philosophically and theoretically, but it's the teachings that the devil is after. Because if he can corrupt the teachings, then he has corrupted the institution. He is if you believe something that is wrong, then you are affected by that as a believer. We're going back to mystery babbling and false religion. And so early on, the enemy, the devil, had come in and begun to affect affect the doctrine of the early church. And so we have the writings of Paul and Peter and John and Jude and James where they're writing to deal with what's called heresy. The word heresy is not necessarily a bad word. It just means opinion. But it was the opinions of those that were different than the opinions of the word of Jesus, the revealed truth that the 12 had become the stewards of. And when somebody deviated, they rose up and said, this is wrong, this is wrong, this doesn't match. And they were at war with those who had come in to teach different things. It started immediately. Listen, we're 2,000 years removed now. You think it's gotten better or worse? Man, we're a long ways removed from it. You know, we're a long ways removed. And so, yes, it has gotten worse. But God is so good to us because not only did he give us, and I'm on an aside here, but I want to drive this home because this is like foundational to me. This helps me. You don't have a clue if I know what I'm talking about. You really don't. I have a card that says I'm a lead pastor. Not a pastor. I'm a lead pastor. There's a difference. See, pastors are just pastors. Lead pastors lead pastors. I'm a lead pastor. I am ordained. Do you know the hoops I had to jump through? I had to jump through a lot of hoops. I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. I have cards that say it. I've got certificates on the wall. I pay dues every month that prove that I am an ordained minister of the gospel. But you know what? You still don't know if I know what I'm talking about. And I don't know if you know what you're talking about. I mean, you look nice, you smell nice, you talk nice, you seem like a Christian, you talk Bibleese, you can talk churchies, like we can talk Jesus stuff, and I think you know what you're talking about, but I really don't know if you know what you're talking about. We, we, how, how do we know that what we're saying is true? Well, here's how we know. Not only does it have to line up with you know, the Bible in general, which we, we could say that. We said, well, it has to line up with the Bible. Okay, so there's the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Protestant, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's the Pentecostals, Baptists, Methodists, you know, Episcopals, all these different varieties and flavors. 
And so we all say we believe the Bible, but so we're like, I believe the Bible. You believe the Bible. We all believe the Bible. What about the Bible do we believe, right? And what, where, where is the standard for truth? Well, Jesus is the truth, somebody says. He is the truth. Truth is a person, right? Well, sure, yeah, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But what, you know, I know people that believe in Jesus. I had a friend of mine that was a preacher, and he was, he was, he was hanging out in Arizona, uh, and, and he was at a, uh, like a resort, and, and he was talking to this lady about healing. Somebody had cancer, and, and my friend, who was a, an apostolic Pentecostal preacher, said, I believe in healing. And this other woman piped in immediately. She said, I believe in healing. He said, I believe my Jesus is a healer. She said, I believe Jesus is a healer too. And they began to agree and they prayed and stuff. Come to find out this woman that was praying with them and believing with them, she didn't, she didn't believe Jesus was the same Jesus. She believed that her Jesus was uh, an ascended master and she was going, going to become an ascended master too. And there were other ascended masters like Buddha and some others and, and my friend was like, you know, agreeing and praying with this woman about Jesus for this guy to get healed. And then he had this uh, horrific un- realization, she doesn't even believe in the same Jesus. It's like a cold chill went over him. She, we're not talking about the same person. She believed in the supernatural, but don't you know there's two sides to that coin, right? So how do we know what's truth? Well, God was so gracious that he gave us not only the Old Testament and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel writings telling the life of Christ, and, and not only the epistles, but he gave us this thing called the book of Acts, which is a field guide. It not only shows us what the 12 preached, it shows us what they told people to do with what they preached. It's like a double-edged sword. Here's what you, here's what you preach. Here's what you do with that message. It's, it's, it's not only orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. It's, here's what you should believe, and here's what you do with that belief. It's a field guide. It's showing us what they put into practice, what they said. Do you all hear what I'm saying? That's very important. It gives us verbatim their messages, their teaching, and then it tells us what they did with that, what they told people to do with that. And it's like a handprint, and it is our responsibility to match that handprint. Because you may not know what that I know what I'm talking about, and I may not know that you know what you're talking about, but the Bible says about those 12 that Jesus opened their understanding that they would understand what was written in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, how that he had to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. They were not omniscient, but they knew specifically about the death, burial, and resurrection, which as we heard Sunday is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation. They knew about that. We see how they preached it, and we see how they practiced it. And it is my responsibility. Who am I to preach something different? What organization on this earth right now can say, Donovan, you're authorized to preach something different than what the apostles preached? Are you kidding me? No one, no organization, no hierarchy, nobody. It is my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel and us as believers to line up with the 12. 
So I don't care if it's an individual or an organization or a worldwide organization if it doesn't line up with what the 12 preached and practiced. It is not orthodox. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so going back to the Roman Catholic Church, like I said, I would argue that the apostolic church began to be assaulted early on. Heresy crept in soon after the, or during the apostolic age. During the 100s and the 200s, it got worse. And then during the 4th century, during the time of Constantine, heresy was codified. Heresy became a code, a, a written code, and there was a hierarchy to enforce adherence to that code. It's known as orthodoxy. There were church councils beginning, well, they'll say in Acts 15, but I'm talking about long after Acts 15 and that council. There's the Nicene Council and the subsequent church councils. Doctrine was decided and disseminated among the world through influencers, and it's been happening ever since. She has intoxicated the world from the wine that's in her cup. Constantine was a Roman emperor who hijacked the church and became the deciding factor of church doctrine and teaching. Are you with me? Emperor Constantine wasn't even water baptized until just before he died. Supposedly years before he had this miraculous conversion, it helped him win a particular battle that changed his fortunes and he became a believer. And uh, But he wasn't even water baptized until just before he died. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like the book of Acts? So he he's, becomes a believer, and then 35, 40 years later, he says, now I'm going to get water baptized. Does that sound like the book of Acts? No. And during this time, he's dictating, and, 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 and uh, he, is the, he is the channel through which doctrine is disseminated. Does that sound like a man that you won't call in the shots in your life about what to believe and what not to believe? No. But that's what happened here. He delayed his water baptism. He had his brother-in-law killed in the meantime. He even had his 10-year-old nephew hung from the gallows. And then he killed his wife and his own son. And he did all of this while he was professing to be a Christian and presiding over church leaders at church councils. He wanted to live like the devil and then get water baptized to wash away his sins or something like that. I'm just telling you, I don't want that guy calling the shots in my life. To me, it is just, it is the woman intoxicating the world. Constantine oversaw a system. He's not the only one, but he's, he's one of the early ones there. He oversaw a system disguised as Christianity, but in fact, very deceptive, going back to the plains of Shinar in ancient Babylon. There's this mixture of Christianity and the mystery religions of Babylon. Constantine, during his reign, would build a church and also build a pagan temple. And there was so much that was taken from 
uh, the Roman pagan priesthood that could trace their lineage all the way back to Shinar and to Babel. For instance, Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus was the title of the chief priest of pagan priesthoods. Now, let's take a look at these seven hills because this is interesting to me. Seven hills is more than just, you know, Donovan and Valerie and Caleb, Lizzie and Alexander and Brendan and Roe and our grandchildren, etc. Seven hills here. The, from 179, it says she, she sat on seven mountains. The NIV says seven hills. It's hills. Rome is the city of seven hills. Did you know that? Their name, they're famous. The famous seven hills of Rome are the Aventine Hill, the Calian Hill, the Capitoline Hill, the Equiline Hill, the Palatine Hill, the Quirinal Hill, the Viminal Hill. Now, incidentally, this is interesting to me, incidentally, there's another city that's known for seven hills. And it is the city of Istanbul, Turkey. But do you know Istanbul is not its original name? Istanbul, Turkey was built from the ground up by a guy, an emperor from Rome named Constantine. He decided to move to the Bosphorus and he looked over it and saw this is the place that he looked from a hill over the Bosphorus and said, I will build my new Rome here, Nova Roma. New Rome here, but the people called it Constantinople. And it was surrounded by city walls like old Rome. And it also had these seven hills. The first hill was where today the Hagia Sophia and the Hippodrome uh, is is located. The second hill uh, is by the Column of Constantine. Uh, The third hill is by the Forum. The fourth hill is the site of the Church of the Holy Apostles. The fifth hill uh, uh, has a monastery on it. The sixth hill has a palace. And the seventh hill is near the Constantinian Wall. So here you have two cities, Rome and Constantinople, that are known for the seven hills. Incidentally, both served as capitals of what? The Roman Empire. So here we have Rome again, or the Roman Empire. Incidentally, we'll get into this in our next uh, series on the book of Daniel, but Daniel's image, which was really a a dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw, uh, has some implications when it comes to this. We could throw that picture up there, Mandy. Some of you may recall I thought this was a good-looking one. I've seen different versions. This one kind of looks cool. He kind of looks cool, you know what I mean? It's the great image uh, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. It's amazing to me because Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream, and, and Daniel was there. He was, he was in Babylonian captivity, and, and Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream and forgot it. He immediately forgot his dream. Woke up, knew it was significant, totally forgot it. And so what did he do? He calls for his wise men. And he said, listen, I dreamed a dream, but I can't remember what it is. I need you to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And if you don't, I will kill you. How's that for a benevolent dictator? Well, man, they're freaking out trying to get the dream. 
Well, Daniel's in the group too because he's one of the wise men. He's an intellectual that had been brought over from uh, Israel. And so there he is in, in the midst. And, and he tells the king, he says, let me pray about it. And he prays about a day. And he comes back and he says, I know what you dreamed and I know what it means. And it was this. Daniel gives him, All right, I, don't you know if you were in Daniel's shoes, you'd be like, oh, Lord Jesus, you know, like give me that, give me that interpretation, Lord. And the, and please, Lord, give, give, me, give me the dream and give me the interpretation. And so he got it. As soon as he told Nebuchadnezzar, I saw what you saw, he told him. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, that's it. That's it. And it was significant because it reached deep into the future. He talked about a gold head, silver chest and arms, bronze belly and thigh, and then iron legs, and then iron and clay feet and toes. And we'll get into this. We'll get into it in some kind of depth. But Babylon was the head. The golden head represented Babylon. The silver chest and arms, the Medes and Persians would come in and overthrow Babylon. The bronze belly and thighs represented Alexander the Great coming in. The, the, the Grecians coming in. The iron legs, the Roman Empire, very vicious, very very dominating in the iron and clay feet and toes. But I want you to notice something because those legs represent Rome, okay, the Roman Empire. And how many, how many legs? There's no amputee here. There's two legs. It's interesting to me because you have Rome and Constantinople, which became the Eastern Orthodox Church. So you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The split, 1054, big, big historical event, a watershed event, the, the split between the east and the west. But there's been domination from, of course, the western church, the Roman Catholic Church, in teachings throughout the world for centuries, centuries and centuries. And yet Constantinople, we know, had influence as well in the Christian world and around the world but I want you to notice that there's been some shifting that has taken place in Constantinople because it's no longer called that. What's it called? Istanbul, right? Istanbul. I used to play that boxing video game, and there was some guy from Istanbul that used to box in that game. Anybody remember what I'm talking I wish I could remember the name of it. It was that boxing game. It was this guy from Istanbul. Well, Istanbul is, it, Turkey has shifted. There's been a shift and it used to be a, a Christian stronghold. And check this out. It, the Greek language survived there. What do they speak in the Roman Catholic Church? What are the masses done in, in the old school? Latin. But in Greek Orthodox, it's, I gave it away, right? Greek, which is more akin to the New Testament. There was, there was more, they, they were closer to the New Testament in that Greek-speaking language in spite of the Babylonian influences but then Christianity was lost when Muhammad came in. And now Turkey has had a political shift. Even though they're in NATO, they are a Muslim nation. Now, when we get down to the feet and the iron and the clay, you have two components that do not mix well together. As we say in the old school, they don't jihaw, iron and clay. Could it be that that is Christianity and Islam that influenced the world and yet they don't get along. But for a while, we'll get into all that stuff. Now, let me get back to the woman on the beast. Now, no international entity. Well, notice she's drunk with the wine, with the blood of the martyrs, of the saints. She's drunk. 
no international entity has been responsible for the death of more Christians. This is hard right here. Then the Roman church. And you can go look it up. I, I could throw out a ton of numbers. I'll give you a few. You can go look it up. I got one word for you. Crusades. And that wasn't just killing Muslims, which was not right. Can I just say that for a second? We love Muslims. When we say Jesus people mission, we don't mean Jesus white, North American, Christian foundation. We mean Jesus people, all people, everywhere. Race, creed, tribe, tongue, sexual orientation, transgender, people. We love people. We love Muslims. It grieves me when, when people will just slam all, you know, a people group. I, I get the religious side of things. But, I, baby, I love people. I'm looking for common ground when it comes to Muslims, too. How can I find some common ground? Where can we talk? Where can we chit-chat? Let me tell you about who you call your prophet, Jesus. Let me tell you about who I call my Savior, Jesus. Let me tell you some Jesus stories. You know what's going to happen? Faith's going to come. The Word's more powerful. Oh, oh God, i got to hurry here. But, but you, have, you have a lot of things that took place. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, listen to this quote. Under the guise of Christianity, the papal church he calls it, committed more enormities than ever disgraced the annals of paganism. Disregarding the maxims and the spirit of the gospel, the papal church, arming herself with the power of the sword, vexed the church of God and wasted it for several centuries, a period most appropriately termed in history, the Dark Ages. 6,000 Catholic priests abused 16,000-plus children since 1950 just in America. Last week in your newspaper, 41 cases were addressed in the Baton Rouge Diocese by the new bishop who was in the Advocate last week. 300,000 children were taken from families and forced into institutions run by the Catholic Church and abused in Australia from 1930 to 1970. That's from a BBC report, BBC. 700,000 men, women, and children in Croatia were tortured and killed by church organizations in in the 1940s. Let's go way back in history. The Albigensian Crusades in southern France... We have Roman Catholic crusaders slaughtering approximately 20,000 citizens of Beziers, France, on July 22nd, 1209. 1236, crusaders slaughtered Jews in the Anjou and Poitou regions of western France in a severe wave of persecution. 
1481, at the direction of the Roman Catholic Inquisitors, authorities torture, burn, and slaughter tens, even hundreds of thousands of people during the Spanish Inquisition. 1540 to 1570, Roman Catholic armies butcher at least 900,000 Waldensian Christians of all ages during the 30-year, that 30-year period. On and on and on. 1685, French Roman Catholic soldiers slaughter approximately 500,000 French Protestant Huguenots on the order of Roman Catholic King Louis XIV of France. During her full reign of terror, and there's controversial numbers that are in some of this, and you, the, the, of course the Roman Catholic Church addresses some of this, but you got to dig. During her full reign of terror, the papacy had caused the cruel death of at least 50 million people, some say as high as 80, and so forth. The following are quote, and, and there's, there's quotes from Roman Catholic writers. I've got pages and pages of them that you, you get some hint as to what happened. In Bohemia, by 1600, in a population of 4 million, 80% were Protestant. When the Habsburgs and Jesuits had done their work, 800,000 were left, and they were all Catholics. On and on. Popes. I remember I was in LSU Shreveport. I got a close stand with me. I was at LSU Shreveport in a history class. Who was my professor? Oh, I'm trying to remember his name. He was an awesome professor. He offended everybody. Man, you had to have a tough hide. He offended everybody. He was into, this was a, a history of Western, it's a Western Civ class. Oh, what's that guy's name? He was, he was incredible. He, uh, he got up one day, I'll never forget it. He said, listen, I'm not trying to offend anybody. He didn't talk like that. He had a real nasally talk. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but you're probably going to be offended today. And then he just like went into the papacy. And a lot of the popes, had a lot of problems. Protestants have had their problems. As a matter of fact, I don't think the answer is Protestantism. The stuff that Martin Luther had, he had some good stuff, some steps in the right direction. He was on a journey. But my God, he killed people too. It's a fornication. It's spiritual. And the blood of the martyrs, there's, in spite of a spiritual fornication, the blood of the martyrs is very physical, very real. A lot of damage has been done. So, <clears throat> what do we do with that, right? That's abysmal, depressing. I told you last week, I know where I live. I'm in South Louisiana. In North Louisiana, everybody's Baptist. In South Louisiana, everybody's Catholic. You know what? I mean, it is what it is. As my uncle Dan and my uncle, my uncle's son would say, it is what it is. It just is what it is. Here's what we got to do. We just got to make sure. I'll tell you what the scripture said. The scripture said, you got to come out from her. In the end of Revelation 18, we'll see it still talking about this system and this woman. It said, if you have anything to do with her, you will partake of her judgments. He's saying, run, flee. How do I know where to go? Go to the Word. Don't let the councils tell you what to believe. Look at what the first church practiced and preached to begin with. You don't need a priest to tell you that. They may tell you you're uneducated. I went to school to learn this. 
Well, that, how many of you know just because you went to school doesn't mean you know anything, right? Get you a good education and get over it. Get in the Word and find out what that first church did because they knew Jesus in the real. In the real. And I don't want to, I know this is heavy stuff, y'all. But I'm just telling you, we got to get, we got to do, and we can get in our own traditions, y'all. We, we can codify stuff and qualify ourselves as experts and, and deviate. Paul put it this way, if, if I come or an angel from heaven or anybody else and they preach something that is different than that which I have declared, consider them to be anathema. One Greek scholar I read after said, that's third level bad. We don't even know how bad that is. Like if there's a lower level of hell, that's what that is. Don't go there. In other words, line up with the word. Because in the word, you know, there's freedom. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Some of those that were destroyed by that church and that woman, they're, they're not sad today. They rejoice in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that we were counted worthy to suffer for your name. Worthy is the Lamb of God. We got here quicker because of all of that nonsense, but worthy is the Lamb. So we can win, y'all, no matter what happens here on this earth, but that salvation is only found in, in the true and living God. Can you lift your hands to Him right now? Father, we thank you so much for your Word. I pray, God, that we would not be deceived, nor bound, nor blinded, nor intoxicated with the wine, with the, the cup of that spiritual fornication, Lord, from that harlot that goes back to the valley of Shinar, to Nimrod, to Semiramis, Lord. May we not participate in that. May we not partake in that. Cleanse us. It is by grace alone, Lord. It is by your finished work, Lord Jesus. We are a kingdom of priests, Lord. We are a holy nation. It's been set apart to do a great work. Let us not be intoxicated and fall asleep on the job, Lord. We've been called out of darkness into this marvelous light. You've redeemed us and called us your own, God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.